0: We are actually going to be in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20, which is the finale of our series through James, so either you're really excited about that or you're really disappointed, but all of us have walked through this journey over the last number of months and uh, come come out with Holy Spirit uh, bruises and bumps from all the challenges that James has kind of given us through this series. So the book of James, if, if you haven't been here to catch you up, is the, is the challenge to understand that God calls us when he says he's called you to follow him you say yes to Jesus. He calls us to live a, a, a faith and a life that compared to those around us looks a bit uncivilized. It looks different. It's not the same, and that's the challenge that James has given us throughout this book. And so, as we come to the, the conclusion this morning, I just want to kind of take you back and remind you where this started. So, when we started this three or four months ago, jumping into the book of James, I knew that I was thinking about James, but I know what kind of pushed me over the top was a conversation I had with a close friend, and we were sitting at lunch one day, and he was describing to me kind of his life, and he shared how he, you know, has a very successful business, he's got a great wife and kids, he goes to a great church, he doesn't go to our church, but. He goes to a great church and so he was going through all this thing of how how if from the outside if you looked at his life people would say wow you're you're a success i mean you've got it all together and so he went through that whole list and then he looked me in the eye and he said but i'm absolutely empty on the inside he said i all of this doesn't produce anything of joy or happiness or contentment he said there's like something missing in my life and so we started to talk about what did that what's that missing element and what we started to talk about was when you get to that place when you finally have everything you're supposed to have what happens is you've now become safe and comfortable and your life has been described as what's easy as opposed to the challenges that God brings to you that actually brings life So when we come to the book of James, that's what James, he comes along and says, okay, listen, there's a faith that maybe you haven't tapped into yet that God's called you to live. And so that's why we've been walking through this journey together. And so today we're going to look at these last few verses and uh, talk about an uncivilized faith, the, the faith that James says this is what it's supposed to look like. And the first few verses he'll talk about prayer and then some closing remarks at the end that we'll kind of walk through. But I think as we walk through this today, and then as we move forward from, from the book of James, what's important for us to remember is that now we have a sense of accountability about our lives. I know I've read through James, I can't count how many times, I know I've preached through it twice as a pastor, so I've been in the book of James a lot, but one of the things that's true is once you receive God's word in your life, there's an accountability that comes that says, okay, now I know the truth. I don't have the excuse of ignorance anymore. Now I've heard the truth. Now what am I going to do about it? James gives probably the best biblical definition of sin in 4, James 4, verse 17. He says, When you know the good that you ought to do and you don't do it, that's sin. Which means if you know the truth and you choose not to do the truth, that means that that your your sin is defined by doing nothing. I know what I should do, but I decide to. Do nothing, And so, as we come through the, the end of this book, understand the greatest tragedy for all of us would be to go through these three or four months together, looking at the book of James, and then be the exact same person we were three or four months ago. Because we've chosen to be passive, we've chosen to step back, we've chosen to do nothing. But James calls us out of that. And so with that in mind this morning, let me read, starting in verse 13, we'll read down to verse 20 of James 5 and his final remarks to us. So it begins, he says in verse 13, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years again he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops my brothers and sisters if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back remember this whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins so we're going to start with the, the first portion where james says listen your uncivilized faith looks like this when it comes to prayer not just that we, we pray, we talk to God, you know, maybe you have a daily devotional life and that, those are important things, but you talk to God often. But he says there's a dimension of prayer that comes along with an uncivilized faith that sometimes we never tap into. And that's what he says in these first few verses. So look at verse 13. The first thing that James tells us about an uncivilized faith is that it prays for strength or it prays for help. Or it cries out to God in a time of need. James says, is any one of you in trouble? Let him pray. And then he goes on and says, if you're happy, then sing songs of praise. So there's celebration. But he's saying, if you're in trouble, and the word trouble literally translated, is what he just talked about last week, if you were here in the previous passage, about struggles and pain and sorrow and trials and difficulties and all those kinds of things. That's what trouble means. So he says, when you're in that kind of situation in your life, are you calling out to God for help? So when, when I, I know I think of my own experience, I think that probably there's three responses that we have when we go through struggles. When we feel like we're in over our head, when we really say, I'm in trouble, and we feel that in our life, we, we respond one of three ways. The first way is we just forget about God completely. We figure out, how can I manage my way out of this? How can I figure out how to get beyond this? How can I do this and make it happen? We kind of shift into control mode. Then the other two options have to do with God, but the first one of those two is we think instead of crying out to God for help, we cry out to God and blame him. And we say, God, why have you done this to me? Why did you bring this into my life? What did I do wrong that made you do this to me? And so we look at God as the source of our pain or the source of our trouble, not realizing that he's at work in the midst of it. And then the third option James is really talking about is in the midst of our trouble, we cry out to God and say, help me, I'm in over my head. The only way I get through this is if you show up. That's a dimension of prayer that sometimes we never get to because we forget about the God who cares deeply for us, and in the midst of trouble, He is the only hope that we have to see anything change around us. Have you ever experienced those moments where you know you're in over your head? One of those for me, I've shared this story before, I think I was in Mexico serving with an orphanage, and we took a field trip from the orphanage to the beach, and we had all the kids in a bus, and there were three or four cars, we were kind of in this caravan heading out to the beach, and as we were heading out, we were on this little two-lane road in Mexico, and And for some reason, something on the other side of the road, I think something fell off a truck or something, it hit the ground and it made a loud noise so everybody on our side of the road immediately looked over to the left. And as everybody did that, for some reason, three or four cars up, someone decided to hit their brakes. Now as we panned back over, the three cars in front of us all were able to stop, but our car when my friend was driving, he never even got to the brake. And we were doing about 40 miles an hour. So we just piled into the back of the car in front of us, which pushed that car into the car in front of them, and pushed that car into the car. Four cars involved. And the impact was so great, that there wasn't any airbags in this car. My, my face hit the dashboard, and I looked up, and all I could see was the hood was pushed in on top of the windshield. There was glass everywhere. There was steam coming from the car. And I was just, we're sitting there stunned. And then as I'm looking at what's in front of me, trying to kind of take inventory of what just happened, I start to gray out. I start, you ever experienced that, where you're almost passing out, you know, your field of vision gets down really small, and I'm really dizzy, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, oh no, oh no, because this is what's happening in my mind. My worst nightmare has come true. Anytime I was saying, hey, I'm going to go to Mexico, and working on a mission trip, people had like five or six people say this to me, well, just make sure you don't get in an accident in Mexico. I'm like, oh no, here it is. So I, we literally stagger out of the car and I get over to the side of the road and I sit down on, on this little kind of brick wall and I'm, I'm, I, I can't even stand, I'm so dizzy and, I, and, and the gray's getting bigger and bigger and the small, the, what I can see is getting smaller and smaller and in that moment, I just cried out to God. I didn't even care who was listening to me. I started speaking in tongues and maybe thought I was speaking in Spanish, but I wasn't. I was just crying out to God in desperation because in my mind, there could only be one thing worse than being in an accident in Mexico. That would be being in a hospital in Mexico on top of an accident in Mexico. So I'm crying out to God. I'm praying. And I was probably five or 10 minutes, just me and Jesus on the side of the road. I don't want to go through this. Help me. And as I prayed, all of a sudden, it was, it was immediate like this this the gray started to fade away and I could see and I stood up and I wasn't dizzy anymore and I, I, like, I made it. And what was amazing is because then when we got over and it was amazing, if you've ever been in an accident in Mexico, it's really kind of a, it's a circus because so, we, like, we had three or four different types of police officers show up and no one knew who was in charge. It was just crazy. And so, but then finally, the one who we figured out, he was a federale, he was in charge. He said, this is the way it works because half of the people involved were U.S. citizens, half of them were Mexican citizens. And he said, this is how we do it in Mexico. He said, if any of you claim injury, you're all going to jail until we figure out who pays for it. It was amazing. Everybody who said they had an ailment was suddenly and miraculously healed. (laughs) And they all got back in their cars, except our car was totaled. We had to get a tow truck, and it had to be towed to the border. But I remember that distinctly because I know I was in over my head, and I knew there was nothing apart that I could do. There wasn't anything I could change. So I cried out to God in desperation for strength and he came through and there has to be those moments where we know that there is no other option he is the only option he is the best option and we cry out for help to him second thing look at verse 14 and 15 uncivilized faith also prays for physical healing So James goes on, he says, Anyone among you sick, let them call for the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will rise them up or raise them up. So James is talking about something that we are somewhat familiar with, which is praying for somebody when they're sick. When they're physically, either they have a disease or there's something, an injury that's occurred in their life, that we pray for that. Now, the important part of highlighting about this verse I want to talk about is the whole concept where James throws in this anoint them with oil, because this has caused a lot of confusion for people, and there's, there's all kinds of different camps and ideas, and I, I read a lot on the background of this, and I, I've grown up in a four-square church, which is Pentecostal, so I'm, I'm used to the practice of anointing people with oil, but what is James talking about? There's really three kind of things that James could be talking about. The first one is that James could be saying, listen, anoint them with oil because oil, historically throughout the scriptures, at at times was used as like a healing salve or for medicinal purposes. So James could say, hey, call the elders, pray for them to be healed, but add medicine as well. Anybody ever take medicine before? Uh, Yeah, raise your hand if you're human. We all have, right? So you have that. And so it could be James is saying, do both, pray for healing and take medicine. That's not wrong. But why would James throw in that? Why wouldn't you he say, hey, go to the doctor and go to the elder? Why wouldn't he say that? Because then there's, a, there's another area, a second area that some people hold to, and that is that somehow there's magical powers or mystical powers in healing oil. That if I just apply the oil and I pray, that somehow there's some kind of magic that comes along with the oil. Like the oil takes on some different properties, and when applied to somebody, some mystical, magical thing occurs. Now that's possible because God could do anything but that doesn't seem to be true in what James is talking about because that wouldn't make sense because what that would be was me putting my faith in the oil and not putting my faith in God. So I had a friend who kind of held to that view and he was like, he would anoint everything with oil. I mean, I think seriously he had some kind of like little vial of oil on his keychain. Everywhere he went, he had to have oil to anoint people and things. And so we He was telling me this story, and I just couldn't believe it. He got caught without his oil one time. He and and another family, their families, two of their families went to a cabin up uh, in the mountain somewhere for, like, vacation, and they got to the cabin, and they felt that there was something not right. I don't know if they felt something, some evil presence in the cabin or whatever, so they made, he made this proclamation, we need to anoint this cabin with oil. I'm like, you did? He goes, oh, yes. I said, well, how did you do that? He goes, well, the problem was we didn't have any oil. He says, so we went through the cabin, top to bottom, and we found one can of Pam cooking spray in the kitchen. And I'm like, you did not. He goes, oh, we did. He said, we walked through the entire cabin, and we sprayed Pam oil on every doorpost in every room to make sure that it was all sanctified before God. I'm like, you did not. He goes, oh, we did. I'm just thinking, really? Do you think the manufacturers of Pam cooking spray had some mystical interaction with God and said, here, use our spray to anoint the cabin? I know I'm being ridiculous, and I don't want to mock my friend, okay? But it gets to the point, it's like, no. No, there's no power in the oil. There's power in Jesus, because what James seems to be indicating is the symbolic use of oil as oil was used throughout the scriptures. It was used medicinally in some cases, but throughout scriptures, this particular phrase in Greek, in in the Greek Old Testament, was never used to refer to medicine. It was always referred as a a process of a symbol being placed upon somebody so that you are saying before God, this person needs special attention. Oil was a symbol that pointed to something bigger than itself, and so when we pray for the sick and we anoint with oil, it's this symbolic gesture, just as it was throughout Scripture, saying, God, this person's going through trouble and struggle and pain, and they need your physical touch. Therefore, we anoint them with oil. And so when James, that's what I, I think that's, I mean, we can't be like, you know, legalistic about it, but I think that's what James is talking about. So, anointing with oil is this natural process that says, hey, here's a symbol of, of, of something before God. Just like when we do communion, the, there's the, the cup, which is, is the juice, which represents Jesus' blood, and then there's the bread that represents his body broken. Now, we don't believe that somehow magically that bread turns into the body of Christ, and that blood turns into his or the drink turns into his blood. But what do those two things provide? They provide symbols that point to something far greater than themselves. That's what oil is. And so what's good for us to do that, it's a reminder to us that God is at work above all things, and we contend for physical healing. We pray for that, whether it's a huge life-altering thing or something, some other physical ailment that we go through on a daily basis. Then going on in verse 15, also uncivilized faith prays for spiritual healing. There's the physical side, and then James says this going on in verse 15, if they've sinned, they will be forgiven. He says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So, what James is talking about is there's a dimension. This is what we have to understand. All physical ailments, all sickness, all disease is the ultimate result of sin. Now, it doesn't mean that there's a specific sin tied to every single ailment. There's not a demon behind cancer or a spirit behind leukemia or whatever it is, but the cumulative impact of sin on humanity comes out in the frailty of our human bodies. Therefore, if you trace everything back to its origin, it all goes back to the fact that Adam and Eve sinned, and we followed suit, and because of that, we live in a broken world. Therefore, our bodies don't work the way that they were intended to work. That means that there, there's that physical reality that's tied to a spiritual reality, which is the, the result of my ailments are the result of ultimate ultimate sin. So the answer to sin is Christ's sacrifice on the cross which covers us physically and spiritually and holistically both now and into the future. Now if we understand that, that means that as we live out our lives, that as we pray for physical healing, we realize that there's a bigger issue than our physical healing. It's our spiritual healing. Because all physical healing in this world is temporary. Spiritual healing is eternal. Because it deals with the source. It deals with the core of what's wrong inside of us. So that means when we think about this, that's why James adds and he says their sins will be forgiven. And then he, he moves to another level, which is now when you sin, we're called to confess our sin to God for forgiveness. But James adds in another element, which is seen in other parts of scripture, which is confess your sins to each other so that you will be forgiven, so that you'll be healed. Why does James add that in? because there's something about our own sin and brokenness that needs to be brought into the light in relationship with other people that brings a level of accountability that we don't experience. We just confess our sin to God alone. Now, does that mean you have to confess every single thing that you've ever done to everybody every single day? No. But I know in my life, I've seen there has to be one or two people that know everything about me and that I've confessed every sin to. Because there's something that happens when you are able to articulate your sin to other people, you realize that you're not alone. Because I know in my life, probably 95% of the time, when I've confessed my sin to somebody else, what I, 5% of the time I'll get, well, that's really too bad and you really should get some help and you really got an issue there and I can't really relate to what you're going on. That's five percent. 95% of the time, you know what I get? You know, I, I struggle with the same thing. I know I've gone through that as well. I, I feel what you're going through and I want to pray for you and I want to agree that God's going to bring freedom in your life for that. See, that, that's what happens when we, we're transparent about our brokenness in our lives, that we have those relational connections that help us to become free from what we're going through. Otherwise, we just get stuck. We get stuck and we, we carry around a weight that God never intended us to carry. And that is, that it's one thing, we, we get forgiveness from God, which is important, but if we don't connect with each other and we don't let those things out, it's like wearing a backpack. And every time we sin, we throw another brick in the backpack and that thing just gets heavier and heavier and heavier until finally we find a relationship where there's safety enough to start unloading and unpacking that backpack and getting everything out of our lives. Because then what happens is no longer you're not alone, but now you know that somebody knows what you've done and yet chooses to accept you. Because God accepts us. That's the beauty of the cross is that Jesus made a way for God to accept us even though we're sinners. Little side note. That person, if you are married, should be your spouse. Your spouse should know everything about you. They should be able to unpack with you all of the stuff of your past. Kim knows everything about me. Things I wish she didn't know about me, she knows. She knows. Because we both, throughout times in our marriage, we have made sure that we unpack all of the junk in our life. Now, if you're thinking, well, that doesn't help me. I'm not married. Well, find a friend. Find a friend that you can trust. A good friend that says, you know that if you're going to disclose what you're struggling with, they're not going to reject you. They're going to choose to accept you. Because that's what James talking about. He's talking about an accountability that comes. So that not a legalistic accountability. So I'm going to tell them now they're going to hit me over the head every time I even think about failing. No, it's an accountability that comes and encourages us to move forward in the areas of struggle in our life. Listen to what David wrote in Psalm 32, verses three to five, with this thing of confession that brings us to this place. He says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Isn't that beautiful? Some of us are walking around with a huge load that God said you're never intended to carry. And if you'll just confess to me and then you'll share with other people what you're going through, you will experience the lifting of guilt off of you, a freedom that you've never experienced in your life. So James says, in uncivilized faith prays for that, prays for that kind of reality of spiritual healing. And then the, the fourth thing that James highlights about prayer is that he says, uncivilized faith prays for the impossible verse 17 and 18, Elijah was a human being even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And again, he prayed, and the heavens gave uh, rain, and the earth produced its crops. We need Elijah's in Simi Valley, don't we? We need rain, don't we? We need figurative and spiritual rain in in our city. But Elijah prayed, and it stopped raining. We're in drought. Who prayed? Right? (laughs) Right? And then he prayed again and it started raining. What did that, that, what did that demonstrate? In fact, in First uh, 1 Kings 17 and then following, you can read through all of the things that God was doing through Elijah. Incredible stuff. But he had this faith to believe for the impossible. Can you imagine if you prayed and said, okay, you know what? I think God wants it to stop raining. I'm gonna pray. You get a lot of people mad, obviously, but you're gonna pray and then it stops raining and for three and a half years, no rain. And then God says, it's time. And you say, okay, God, let it rain and then it just pours. That doesn't happen every day, does it? By our own human standards, that's impossible, but Elijah prayed for that. Why do we not pray for those kinds of things? I know in my life, I, I, I know why, for me. See, sometimes I forget, my responsibility in prayer is to ask. God's responsibility is to answer. When, when we get these things confused, what happens is we are afraid to ask because we're afraid God's not going to give us the answer we want, therefore he'll be less than God. Or if I pray and I contend for something and God doesn't answer the way I want him to, then people are going to look at me and I'm going to look stupid and foolish. And I've come to the conclusion in my life that the reason I don't pray is not because God's not able, it's because my own ego and my own pride. But if I were just to leave it up to God and say, you know what? God can take care of his reputation on his own. He doesn't need me. And I just ask, just ask and see what God might do. Kim and I have always known throughout our marriage that she has more faith than I do. And I'm trying to catch up to her. She would call me a pessimist. I'd say I'm a realist, right? Pessimists, we know. We're realists, right? She's more optimistic. She has more faith. And we've seen that so many times. I will always see kind of the negative side of things. She has a tendency to see the positive and believe that God could do more. A number of years ago when we were in Ventura, and uh, when we were in Ventura, because of different circumstances and houses we were living in and all kinds of stuff, we lived in Ventura where we were, for in a seven-year period, we, we moved six times. We were, like, moving constantly. And so one of those times was at the height of the housing market. And because of that, everything, there's no way we could even afford anything to buy. So even the rentals were becoming really difficult. So we're trying to find a house because we're pastoring a church and we needed space. And different things were going on. So, so we decided to look for housing. And so Kim found this house that was amazing. And it was in the neighborhood that she had always wanted to live in, in Ventura. And so I'm, I'm thinking, Really? I mean, there's no way. That's my automatic. and like, but to humor you, we'll go look at the house. So we did. We met the owner. We walked to the house. It's a beautiful house in a nice neighborhood. And, and so he told us what the rent is. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. There's no way. And so we're going through it. And, and so we finally, we finished, and we say thank you. And so we're, we're driving away. And, and I, mean, he, I knew that it was way out of our range. He had other people that were calling him and looking at the house. In fact, at the, in that same season, we had gotten outbid for a rental which is crazy. There was a rental, I think it was going for like 2200 Somebody came and offered above that value and paid six months cash up front. That's the market we were in. People were not, you know, they were not just paying what was asked, they're paying more. So we're driving away, and this is what Kim says. We knew what our budget was, we knew what we could afford, and it was way below what he was asking. So she says to me, she goes, would you just do this for me? She goes, would you write him a letter and just ask if he would reduce the rent? Just tell them our situation, tell them what we're making, how much we can afford, and just ask and see if God might move and give us favor in this situation. And I looked at my wife and I said, anything for you, honey. (laughs) But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, this is the stupidest thing ever. Honestly, this is what I'm thinking. But I'll write the letter. So I wrote the letter and I explained the situation and I sent it off to him. And like four days later, phone rings. It's the owner of the house. He goes, I really like you guys. I want to rent my house to you for the price that you asked for. I'm like, okay, Kim, you got some trick that I did not see behind the scenes. You, it was this guy just out of the blue. thought, you know what? In a market where I could get more than I'm asking, I'm going to take less than what I'm asking because I want to rent to you. There's so many times since then before I would go, go down my pessimistic road, I'm like, okay, God, I know you're bigger than my pessimism and my realism, and you can do more than I can even possibly imagine. Or do you have those moments where your faith pushes you to the place where you ask for what you would perceive to be impossible in your life? That's uncivilized faith. Then there's three more things I want to highlight as we we conclude that James takes on in verses 19 and 20, kind of his closing summary remarks about uncivilized faith. And he, he says three things that demonstrate what it looks like when we live uncivilized, when we have this kind of faith. The first thing is truth. Look at the first part of verse 19. He says, my brothers and sisters, if one of you wander from the truth, so he's saying at the end of his book, i've just given you five chapters worth of truth if you are to wander away from that and we'll talk about what he means as we go on in this verse but knowing the truth he says you've been you have the truth you've been given the truth and one of the signs of uncivilized faith is that you've been exposed to the truth you know the truth of who jesus is you know the truth of your life and therefore there has to be something in you that responds to the truth and that's what we'll go on and talk about in this passage. But when you think about that for a moment, when you now know information that you didn't know before, does it make any difference? Does it make any difference that you know these things? And, and I've been through the book of James so many times. But what God calls us to is always, once again, to come back and re-engage the scriptures and listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying. And then once the truth settles in, it means it requires a response. That's the evidence of it. And that means there has to be something in our life that causes us to live differently than before. Not a religious kind of checkbox that says, "Okay, well, I've got that one down." No, there's something inside of us that so compels us that God almost forces the issue that are you going to live this thing out? So, James chapter 1 verse 27, probably familiar first to you. James says, he says pure religion is this to care for widows and orphans in in time of need and to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. Probably heard that verse. So that's the verse that everybody feels guilty about. Like, oh man, widows and orphans. Really? Yeah, really. Probably 10 years ago, this one started to really work into me. I'd read that passage so many times. But God was going to force the issue and says, are you going to live this out? Are you really going to embrace this? Are you know the truth? Are you going to do anything about the truth? Are you going to Wander away from it. So when we moved into our house in Newburgh, we just happened to move in around the same time as a lady who had just recently lost her husband was moving in next door. She'd been married for a number of years and now he had passed away. Her kids were in in the area, but they weren't as hands-on as they probably should have been. And so she moves into this house. Her name's Sharon. And over time, Sharon became a part of our family because God was saying, listen, I'm gonna show you where the widows are. They are right next door to you. And I remember as we got to know her, I remember I got, as I'm getting to know her, I really we started to really love her and care for her. and In fact, so much so that as, as that, that passage really sunk in, I started to think about what is her life like? When she closes the door and she's in her house by herself, because, you know, if you've been married, you reach that point where you forget what it was like to not be married. And I'd reached that point. I'm thinking, I can't imagine what my life would be, out with, would be without Kim right now. So what would it be like? Courtney and Jordan are not here. Kim's not here. It's just me. And I thought, wow, what a life. And so I started thinking about that everything. You don't have anybody else to help you do anything. You're always by yourself. So over the next five to six, seven years that we live next door to her, we just took her in so there were times when I would be doing my yard and mowing the lawn and she had hired a gardener that I think was on the take and when she was out of town he wouldn't show up so I would just keep mowing right across my lawn onto her lawn and I would mow her grass she had some, some trees and some shrubs that she couldn't trim on her own so when I would do mine I, I would go over and do hers and uh, we'd have her over for dinner and she, she would always so gracious to us and, and then, then when we do bark dust every year in Oregon everybody does bark dust in the spring that's what you do we would do her yard as well we'd get extra just to, to embrace her and I remember that even to this day I think she still she has contact with Kim and when we go up to Oregon we'll see her again but just just the joy of entering into somebody else's life God forced the issue Kim and I had the dialogue for a year a year about fostering about welcoming in a child that is in a place in life where they're the equivalent of an orphan because they don't have a mom and dad that's capable of taking care of them that season and I pushed back on that until I realized this is not a religious duty to check off the box of, of James 1, This is a human being that needs help and needs love and needs care. Finally, when we had a baby in our household, everything changed for me because I realized this is not about doing a religious duty or living out pure religion. This is about caring for a human being that needs care. And something changed in me. And now we go through seasons like right now where we don't have a child, and we're going crazy. We do have two kids, Courtney and Jordan. They're just a little bit bigger than a baby. So because of that, you just feel something in you. That took me a while to get to that point. When we know the truth, it's eventually got to settle in. Otherwise, we are doing what James is talking about. We know the truth, but we're wandering away from it. And what he says in this next part is coming back to that. So look at the next part of verse 19, because James says uncivilized faith is also demonstrated in reconciliation. He says, and someone should bring that person back. That means that you know the truth. Somebody else you know has known the truth in their life. They've wandered off from it. And now God has placed you in their life to draw them back to the truth of who Jesus is in their life. That's what James is saying true uncivilized faith looks like that you draw them back through this process of repentance and reconciliation what restoring a relationship that's been broken between them and god and as i was reading through this passage and i was thinking about this i think this verse applies to our city like you wouldn't believe now i don't have the history that many of you have been in simi valley for a little less than three years But I cannot tell you how many conversations I have had in stores and restaurants when I'm getting my hair cut with people in our city who have had some link with Jesus in their past and now they've walked away. They've walked away. I have talked to people who historically even went to our church and now have nothing to do with God. This is our city. And this, of all verses, applies to us that if somebody has known the truth and they walk away, they wander off, is to what? Bring them back. And all of us probably can think of one or two or 10 or 20 or 30 people that fit in that category that God is wanting us to bring them back. In fact, one of the things that's important to remember when we draw somebody back is that we have to do it the way Jesus approaches us. When you read through the Gospels, you never see Jesus approach a sinner. And even when you look at Luke 15, somebody who should have known better better the, the whole posture of God is not to come down with harshness and judgmentalness. It's to graciously and compassionately and kindly yet firmly bring that person back in relationship to God. Listen to what Paul wrote in Romans 2, verses 3 and 4. Now, this is not a paraphrase called The Message by Eugene Peterson, where he says this. He says, You don't think, did you, that just by pointing your finger at others, you would distract God from seeing all your misdoings from coming down on you hard? Or do you think that because he's such a nice God, he's going to let you off the hook? Better think this one through from the beginning. God is kind, but he's not soft. In kindness, he takes us firmly by the hand and leads us into a radical life change. Our posture towards people who have wandered from the truth is to firmly take them by the hand, yet graciously and kindly lead them back into a radical life change. That's what James is talking about here. And why is this important? Because I know it's true for me, it's probably true for a lot of us. My default, when someone knows the truth and walks away, is usually not kindness, compassion, and mercy. It's judgment. You should have known better. What are you doing? Wake up. Get your life together. No one's ever said that, right? Yeah, you know, we feel that way towards people, don't we? There's no accident that Jesus referred to us as sheep, and he is, he is being our shepherd, because we are just like sheep. Now, we don't have the context that people did 2,000 years ago, but I'm, I'm not like, you know, big into agriculture and farming and cattle but i can tell you one thing i've learned a little bit about sheep over the years and it, what's true about sheep is true about us sheep don't respond to harshness now if in a situation where you're forced to and force has to be taken that's one thing but on their own sheep are not naturally going to respond to someone who comes down hard on them saw this firsthand i've told this before favorite show on tv is the amazing race A couple epi- or a couple seasons ago, one of the tasks that the, the contestants had to do is they actually had to go herd sheep. They had to get a group of sheep into this pen and close the gate. And when the teams first got there, they were there, you can tell their adrenaline's pumping, so like, let's get the sheep into this pen as fast as we can. So they're yelling, they're jumping around, they're making a big scene, and the sheep are scattering everywhere. And it took them like a few tries to figure out, wow, the sheep don't respond this way. But the more calm The more methodical, the more patient they were, the more easily the sheep responded to them, and eventually they were able to get them into the gate, close it behind them, and they were able to move on. The same thing is true for us. When we think about us, how well do we respond when someone comes down harsh on us? Not very well. You know what usually happens in all of us? Our pride rises up and says, oh no. No, don't tell me what's wrong with my life. And we get defensive. But what if somebody comes along with compassion, yet with the truth, is that we're far more apt to respond. and That's what James is talking about, is that bringing somebody back in a kind, gracious, gentle manner, yet firmly as God would do with us. And then the final thing that James says, look at verse 20, is our uncivilized faith is also demonstrated in salvation. He says, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is pretty powerful. What James is saying is, listen, if you love somebody enough and they've known the truth and you bring them back, you are saving them from certain death. You are saving them from a, an eternity apart from God. And what could be more important than that? But he goes on, and when he says this, is pretty amazing. He says, and cover over a multitude of sins. Now, there's a variety of different interpretations of what James is trying to say. Now, one of the, the one of we're pretty confident it can't be is that some people will read this and they'll say, well, what James is saying is that if you bring somebody back into relationship with God who has wandered off even though they knew the truth, and somehow it covers your sins and you're forgiven for God, be careful. If we interpret it that way, that means we've just earned our salvation. That we have to go find all these wayward sheep and bring them back to God in order to earn all that extra, you know, cover of our, coverage of our sin. It can't be that because we're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, But what's true about this is one of the things I was reading, I thought this is a pretty interesting application to this, that if we do reach out to bring somebody back into the fold and reach out to someone who's walked away and who's known the truth, it it forces us to confront some of the bigger issues in our own life in order to do that. And I think there's three things we have to confront in order to be willing to do that. We have to confront our own selfishness, our indifference towards other people, and our judgment towards other people. You can't bring somebody back to Jesus if you're dealing with those three things. Because the selfish person says, it's all about me. If it's not about me, why am I going to waste my time? The indif- indifferent per- person says, it's not my problem, it's their problem. I'm not going to do anything. It's all on them. They have to do it. And the judgmental person says, serves them right. They made the choice. Now they've made their bed. Now they have to lay in it, right? But if you are willing to graciously go after somebody, you have to confront all three of those. And so in a sense, that covers a multitude of our own sins that we have to face in our own life to see, wow, wow, that's how I feel about people. That's, that's why I wouldn't go after that person because I'm selfish or I'm indifferent or I'm judgmental towards them. We have to confront those in our, own, in our own lives. So with all that being said, I want to close with this. We've been exposed to the truth, the truth of James, the truth the Holy Spirit inspired James to write. And because of that, now that we understand the truth, there's consequences, consequences, and accountability that comes with that. First of all, for us individually to live out the truth. But secondly, we're in a community, both within the church and within our city, where we have relationship with people that are have chosen to take a step away from God. But God has placed you strategically in their life to have you help them take a step back towards God. Who is that person? Who is the, those? Pe- who are those people? See, because something happens... When our faith gets beyond ourselves, you know what happens? It starts changing the way we live. Because in some of us right now, as we think about someone who's been wayward, someone who's walked away, this is what crosses our mind. There's no way I could bring them back to Jesus because right now, my life's a mess. How can I go tell them to come back to the truth when I've wandered from the truth? And it makes you start to question your own faith, which is actually a good thing. Because you realize, you know what? It's not just about you. It's about somebody else and what is it in the person i'm not blaming us or blaming the church but what is it in the people in our city that has caused them to walk away from the lord do we take any responsibility in that as the church do we take any ownership in the fact that maybe there could be something that we have done when someone looked at our lives or looked at our church and said i don't want any part of that anymore But what if we graciously, with compassion and humility, come alongside someone and say, yeah, you know what? We're an imperfect bunch of people, broken before Jesus, humbled before God, but you need to come back because you're just like us. What if we took that approach? It might change the way people respond to Jesus. Finally, this. When we finish, at least finish this series, I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you. There's always one, two, or five, or ten things that God says, boom, this is it. This is what you needed to hear. And we've gone through three to four months of this, so I want to encourage you to do one of a variety of things. If you miss some of the messages, you can go back and listen online. But you know, more than listening to a message preached by me or by John Looney, just open the book of James and read all five chapters. And say, Holy Spirit, what do you want me to know? It's kind of a scary prayer because he's going to say this and this. He's going to bring out his big Holy Spirit highlighter. He's going to highlight all these things. You're like, oh man, what is it? I've read through James so many times, but I'll tell you, this is my, one of my personal ones. And I didn't even preach this one. I was gone that Sunday when John Looney talked about, in James 4, where he talks about your life is a mist. It's a, it's a vapor that shows up for a moment, and then it's gone. You ever taken a, like a squirt bottle and you squirt the mist? You see it, you feel it for like two seconds, and then it just evaporates. And James is saying that in the context where he's saying, listen, you make all these plans about your life. You think about what you're going to do tomorrow and how you're going to make money and what your will is for your life. And you think about all these plans, but you forget that you're here for a moment, a moment and then it's over. And in that moment, what are you doing in that moment? What you're doing, you're focused on all these things that are not eternal, all these things that are not significant, and you're missing the bigger picture. And I, that's so convicting to me because it reminds me every single day of my life, today is just a mist. It's going to be gone before I know it. So what am I doing? Oren McManus says this way in his book, Chasing Daylight. He says, you have the date of your birth you have the, or, and the date of your death. And in the middle, you have this thing called a dash. That's your life. What are you doing in the dash? What is your life? And when I read that over again, it's like, oh, God, remind me. I'm wasting so much time of my life of this little mist that's here and gone and and how much do I stress out and think about tomorrow and the future and what am I going to do and what's going to happen when I'm not even fully present in the moment. That's me. I don't know what it is for you. That's one of the things the Holy Spirit said, hey, remember, you're a mist. So make the most of every opportunity in your life. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for James once again. Thank you for his honest and inspired writing that challenges us once again to question our faith and what it looks like and come back to what it means to truly follow you and so I ask Holy Spirit by your power that you would highlight to us all those things that you want us to work on and Lord I know it's easy for us to walk away from James feeling guilty and overwhelmed and condemned but that's when we look at through the lens of our own ability but, Lord, we know when we look at through the, living out this faith through the lens of the power of your Holy Spirit, we know it's not impossible. It's not guilt-driven. It's not based on condemnation or earning our salvation. It's based on a transformation in our lives. So I pray, Holy Spirit, would you transform our souls? Would you give us the passion that we, can't, we cannot manipulate, we can't manufacture on our own, that only comes from your presence? So as we hear the words of James that we are inspired to live those out because your spirit lives inside of us, Jesus. Thank you for what you're doing. Can help us to continue to live this out as we move forward in your name. Amen.